From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer. I'm John Katzlamidis, and I've covered Las Vegas since 1996. In Season 3 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, I go one-on-one with Oscar Goodman, one of the last living legends of the mob era. A heads up before we dive into Season 3. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. It's the time of year most people in the United States wait for. The time when the four major sports collide. MLB playoffs, NBA and NHL seasons kick off, and of course, football becomes synonymous with Sundays. But it wasn't always that way. In Las Vegas, a billion-dollar industry was born out of manipulation and mob ties. One of the key players who made it possible was Frank Lefty Rosenthal, aided in his success with the help of his trusted attorney, Oscar Goodman. It's a constant barrage of noise, from the high-pitched dings, coins hitting metal, bells ringing, and people cheering as they win. These are the sounds that give hope to those who spend hours getting lost at slot machines or tables. With no windows and no clocks, all sense of time is lost. There's a constant rhythm, almost like a well-known song, that happens when you step foot into a casino. Everything happens on a beat. Dice rolling, cards shuffling, bets being placed. The energy in the room is palpable. It's immersive. With money on the line, it's more than a night on the town. It's a way of life for the heavy-hitting gamblers. The first time you walk through a casino, that's as different as in its own way as the desert or Lake Mead is. Stan Hunterton, former special attorney with the Organized Crime Strike Force in Las Vegas. At the time, there was nowhere else in the country where you could walk through a casino I'd say my dominant impression was the noise, the slot machines. But pull back the curtain, and there is an often overlooked dark side to the industry, a side that one of the most well-known criminal defense attorneys would get involved in, Oscar Goodman. The mob's hold on Vegas casinos started in 1945 with the purchase of the El Cortez Hotel Casino by Meyer Lansky, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, Gus Greenbaum, and Moe Sedway. The mob was also behind several prominent hotels in the 50s, but it wasn't until two decades later that casinos on the Strip would see its most profitable era up to that point. The success put Las Vegas on the map for those looking to score cash and a lavish lifestyle quickly. One of those looking to profit was a man from Chicago, Frank Rosenthal, better known as Lefty because he was left-handed, but he never used that nickname himself. And people who worked with him, including Oscar Goodman, knew to only use it out of earshot. He even referred to himself in the third person. He referred to himself as Mr. Frank Rosenthal when he spoke. He never said I. He never said uh, uh, Frank Rosenthal. It was always Mr. Frank Rosenthal. And I'm talking about with people who were his confidants, uh, his friends. It was always Mr. Frank Rosenthal. Rosenthal was widely hailed as an expert on sports gaming. After learning the ins and outs of underground sports betting in the bleachers of Wrigley Field as a child, 
He went on to work for the Chicago outfit as their head bookmaker. His knowledge became an asset to the crime organization. He was frequently arrested for illegal gambling and bookmaking, but only convicted once. His illegal activities drew the attention of the FBI, which opened an ongoing case file on Frank, 300 pages long. To escape the eye of authorities, the Chicago oddsmaker moved to Las Vegas in 1968, where he could operate legally in the sports bookmaking industry. To stay under the radar from Nevada's increasingly strict gaming regulators, various mob leaders used a frontman by the name of Alan Glick. He was granted a $62 million loan secured through the mob's control of the Teamsters Union. But after using the money to buy four casinos on the Strip, Glick was told Rosenthal would be running the operations. The Argent Corporation purchased four major casinos, the Stardust, Fremont, Marina, and Hacienda. Rosenthal focused most of his energy on the Stardust, which became one of the hottest hotels in the city. Rosenthal uh, didn't take crap from anybody, and rightfully so. Here's a guy uh, who at the Stardust was the first uh, person in, in Nevada who uh, employed uh, female dealers. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one who uh, built the prototypical uh, race and sports book, the first one ever. Exactly. And uh, brought uh, Siegfried and Roy into the hotel and became an overnight success as far as their entertainment. Money came flowing in, allowing the skimming operation to grow exponentially. Before long, Rosenthal was on the radar of authorities and needed a lawyer, turning to a trusted man in the inner circles of the mob, attorney Oscar Goodman. This is Las Vegas Review-Journal's federal court reporter, Jane Ann Morrison. Frank Rosenthal gave him a cachet. It brought him other clients. People figure if they're gonna hire him, he must be good. And so it did give him a reputation that went nationwide. And while I covered most of what he did in, in Las Vegas, he represented monsters in Philadelphia. There were cases there. Goodman started representing Rosenthal in 1972 after Rosenthal was indicted on illegal betting charges. In 1975, a Las Vegas federal judge dismissed the indictment against him due to an illegal wiretap. The two men worked together in the decades to come. Lefty was always good to me. I had no problem with him. I flew around in a private plane. I ate the best meals. I had the, the finest cases. I was able to thumb my nose at people uh, who uh, I felt should have their uh, persons uh, thumbed at. And he, he gave me an opportunity to be a good lawyer. Rosenthal and Goodman's paths would continue to cross as Rosenthal's profile grew. Rosenthal's inner circle included a tough enforcer, a childhood friend from Chicago, none other than Tony the Ant Spilatro. Running an illegal money-making empire was no easy feat, but somehow, with Tony Spilatro by his side, Frank Rosenthal made it look effortless. In 1969, Rosenthal married Jerry McGee, a showgirl at the Tropicana and casino hustler known for her model good looks. Years of accusations of infidelity on both sides eventually came to a major turning point when Jerry secretly had an affair with Spilatro. They divorced in 1981. Rosenthal and Spilatro's friendship never recovered. Things took a turn in the mid-1970s when FBI and local officials learned Rosenthal did not have a gaming license. This led state regulators to bring the hammer down. Former attorney and Nevada Gaming Control Board member, Jeff Silver. 
in this particular case, if you look at the gaming regulations, uh, there is no privilege of, uh, against self-incrimination that can be claimed in the process of, of seeking a license. It's a privileged industry. And uh, there's no one that, nothing that says that any applicant is entitled to receive a license. And therefore, the burden is all on the applicant to show that they're qualified. When Rosenthal applied for a gaming license, the Gaming Control Board unanimously denied him. Then it went before the Nevada Gaming Commission for further review. In January 1976, during a two-day hearing, Jeff Silver questioned Rosenthal vigorously during heated exchanges. Uh, if looks could kill, I was dead 15 times over, you know, as he was staring at me. But the fact of the matter is that he did have this association with Tony Spilatro, who was a known assassin at that time. Even though he had not been convicted of any offenses, he was at least uh, thought to be uh, involved in a number of gangland-style murders. And Rosenthal himself was not a nice man in terms of how he conducted his activities in the casino. Uh, you know, he would uh, browbeat certain employees if they didn't meet his, his standards. The Gaming Commission denied Rosenthal a gaming license due to his mob connections and prior arrest record. It was the first attempt of many where he and Oscar worked together to comply with the Gaming Commission rules. Rosenthal applied for other licenses, such as food and beverage director and later entertainment director. His attempts to get licenses under other titles continued thanks to a loophole in the law, but he would be denied. In the past, when the Gaming Control Board and the Gaming Commission had an objection to an individual, that was the end of the story. The uh, corporation didn't want to buy any trouble from the Gaming Control Board and the Gaming Commission by uh, defying what they thought was a, an issue regarding one of their employees. But contrarily, the Stardust Hotel kept Rosenthal on after his denial and found other positions for him during the course of the next three years that would allow him to stay involved in the hotel and continue to receive uh, money from the hotel for the services that he was rendering. In 1978, Rosenthal appealed to the 8th Judicial District Court of Nevada. He alleged that the decision of the commission violated constitutional provisions, was unsupported by any evidence, and was not in accordance with the law. It was a joke because I know for a fact that uh, uh, one of the fellows who worked for the Gaming Control Board, Phil Hannafin, one of the three Gaming Control Board members, said to Rosenthal, uh, Frank, I promise you a fair hearing. Rosenthal testified at each hearing and was given the opportunity to explain certain past alleged criminal activities and argue his position. Seventeen witnesses testified on his behalf, and seven supporters wrote letters attesting his good character and reputation. It was puzzling to me because in the short time that I was on the Gaming Control Board, I did know something about the individuals who testified, and all of them were respected members of the industry. And I can only assume that there still was some influence that could be uh, garnered from an organized crime type of an application and Tony Spilatro to make these people willing to testify. Las Vegas certainly had its share of colorful types during this particular area, most importantly, we had accepted people with uh, criminal backgrounds and organized crime affiliations into our community, and they became valuable members of our community. The district court said Rosenthal was not denied due process in the hearings before the State Gaming Control Board and the Nevada Gaming Commission, and that the plaintiff's work permit had expired. The man overseeing the proceedings was none other than the Nevada Gaming Chairman and future Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Reed spoke about the moment Rosenthal ripped into him at the meeting. This was during a 2016 interview with the Mob Museum. 
He raised, he's one of the few people in the world that I was actually afraid of because I thought he was a killer. Harry Reid uh, was going to do whatever Harry Reid wanted to do. He held the hearing on a Saturday and a Sunday, never done before, two days in a row on a weekend. And uh, it was the antithesis of due process. It was a, a, a situation where he just went after him. And everything that, and I was there, I was part of it, uh, everything that Rosenthal accused him of, uh, Rosenthal was right. Rosenthal appealed the decision of the 8th Judicial District Court and took it to the Nevada Supreme Court in 1979. Once again, he was denied. Las Vegas Review-Journal's Jane Ann Morrison recalled the moment she crossed paths with Rosenthal. He had been in the grand jury, and I saw him, and I uh, tried to walk and ask him some questions. And I will tell you this, the man had the coldest eyes I'd ever seen. He made me more nervous than Tony Spilatro made me. He was just that cold and that, um, that chilling. A version of Frank's heated argument with Reed would later play out on the big screen in the movie Casino, a film inspired by Rosenthal's rise and fall in Las Vegas over 14 years. His character, played by Robert De Niro, was named Ace Rothstein. What they made it seem to be in the movie Casino was that it was like a kangaroo court. Uh, the, the Gaming Control Board did in fact have a joint hearing with the uh, Nevada Gaming Commission, which had not been done previously. The Gaming Commission said, uh, do you have anything else to add, Mr. Rosenthal, to all the things from cumulatively from the three hearings that he had been involved in beforehand? And he said no, his counsel said no. And so they went ahead and denied him quickly. And that was when the blow up occurred in front of Harry Reid, who was on the Gaming Commission. They had a hearing and uh, that's the one that's depicted in the movie Casino. Mobbed up. The Fight for Las Vegas will be back after this. Can't get enough of the intrigue, drama, and excitement behind the history of Las Vegas? Live it by dining at the Golden Steer Steakhouse, the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and an old haunt of Tony Spilatro's. You know, the guy from the podcast you're listening to. The Golden Steer has been serving up famous and infamous customers since 1958, from mobsters to the Rat Pack, Muhammad Ali to Holly Madison. Enjoy this classic experience in person or try their world-famous best steaks on earth in the comfort of your own home by ordering today at goldensteerlasvegas.com. Frank Rosenthal's story had all the makings of a Hollywood hit long before director Martin Scorsese released his 1995 film, Casino. The Oscar-winning film still serves as a reference point for those hoping to understand what real Las Vegas mobsters were like. Robert De Niro played the role of Sam Ace Rothstein, a character based on Rosenthal. It also brought his real-life attorney, Oscar Goodman, to the big screen, making his feature film debut playing himself. I had no idea that the movie was even being made here, and I got a phone call one day from uh, Frank Rosenthal, uh, the fellow who's depicted in the movie by Robert De Niro. He said, how would you like to be in the movies? I said, I've always wanted to be in the movies, but I have a hard time memorizing. I said, Frank, um, I said, whoever is uh, talking about me doing this, they have to know that I, I can't memorize. He says, don't worry about it. So I next get a phone call from Martin Scorsese. Now that's when you're in the showbiz, uh, that's like uh, hearing from above. 
The mob attorney found himself now spending time on set with A-listers, including De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Sharon Stone. The stars played their roles so convincingly that it had Oscar, who had worked with each of their real-life inspirations, doing a double take. I saw a, a rather diminutive fella uh, sitting uh, standing with his uh, uh, back to me, and he had a crook in his left arm. That's a crook like, uh, not a crook, but a crook. And he had a little briefcase, and it looked just like Tony Spilaccio, who was played by Joe Pesci. Okay. And it was Joe Pesci. And you could not tell the difference. That's how close they resembled one another. It's extraordinary. It was eerie. When it came time for his scene in the courtroom, based on when he represented Frank Rosenthal in real life, Oscar froze. It's the hearing scene. And I stand up and, uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman. And uh, that's the only thing that I can remember, Mr. Chairman. Couldn't remember the next line. And... Uh, uh, apparently, I was saying Mr. Chairman at the wrong time. <laughs> but if you look at the movie closely enough, you'll see that uh, so many of those who are in the audience and uh, those who are uh, like Don Rickles and mm -hmm. Sharon Stone, they're all sitting there on the front and second row. They're getting up when they shouldn't. <laughs> they're sitting down when they shouldn't. They didn't have a cue. So uh, it, it was rough. And then De Niro, Mr. De Niro, Robert De Niro, who was the, the consummate actor, um, says, look, just take it easy. Just do what you would do when you're in court. You have nothing to worry about. I said, but Mr. De Niro, I can't memorize. He says, well, look, we'll get you cue cards. There's nothing wrong with cue cards. Uh, he said, Marlon Brando used them. I said, if it's good enough for Brando, it's good enough for Oscar. He was famous so they for had, that. So they had the cue cards, and I had no problem after that. The movie got a lot of things right, including how Rosenthal miraculously survived an attempted murder. In October 1982, a bomb attached to the gasoline tank was detonated when Rosenthal started his car, a 1981 Cadillac Eldorado. It happened in the parking lot of Tony Roma's on East Sahara Avenue. People can still drive by that area today, now home to Hustler Hollywood, an adult gift shop. Rosenthal miraculously survived the blast because his vehicle had a steel plate installed under the driver's seat. But Oscar Goodman says there were some things that weren't accurate in the film, including the portrayal of Rosenthal's personal life. See, I, I would visit him at his home. Right. Uh, he was a, a night guy. His wife doted on him. And uh, in the movie Casino, they had her as a, a dope user and a, a drunk. I've seen her a drink, but I never saw any kind of dope. We'd go over the court proceedings, it was all business, uh, but uh, he would uh, prop himself up in his bed, in his bedroom and uh, the home on the country club, uh, Las Vegas Country Club. But he would always have his, uh, his pajamas on and uh, he, a silk robe and his little slippers. And his wife, uh, as I said, she doted on him and um, we did our business. Another character who wasn't portrayed the way he remembered him was Tony Spilatro. If I had to do it again, I, I, I would have done it differently. I was very upset. Made a couple of mistakes in my life, and I'm man enough to apologize uh, about it. That, that was one of my mistakes. I was so anxious to be part of Hollywood and the movie, be with all those stars, that I never read the script. And I said I would do it without reading the script. And when I saw the, uh, the movie... I said, you know, they had Rosenthal down to a T. Uh, De Niro really was very, very accurate. 
And I'm sure uh, uh, Pesci was as accurate as they wrote about him, but that wasn't the Tony Spilatro that he was playing that I knew. Oh, really? What was the difference? Oh, they made uh, Spilatro into sort of, uh, I'm not going to call him a racist, but uh, using epithets uh, about uh, religion. Never heard him do that. I never saw him uh, dealing in cocaine or snorting. I mean, uh, all over the country with the guy representing him and never saw him uh, uh, take uh, uh, cocaine. Every once in a while, he would take a drink. But uh, no, uh, with me, that's almost a, that's almost a blessing. I need the company. <laughs> it's a price of admission. Right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I would have, I've had instances like that in my life where I felt something was not correct. And I brought it to people's attention, even at a personal loss. But I didn't even take a, a chance of, uh, in doing it uh, and didn't find out about it, although I should have, uh, before the movie came out. And uh, I hurt a lot of people's feelings. I did because they felt that uh, Tony and myself had a very good relationship and they didn't see Tony any different than I saw him. They saw him as a nice guy who, you know, went to Little League games and picked up the check for Sister Dominique uh, over at Piero's on uh, Christmas. And not uh, a coke-snorting, a rough guy that was portrayed. And I tell people there's a little bit of truth to this, maybe more than a little bit, that I had no idea what I was doing for a living until I saw the movie Casino. I didn't realize what these people were doing. I, I used to make fun of it. I never believed that they were skimming and weighing money and flying back and forth to Kansas City and divvying it up until I saw the movie. Then I said, Wow. If mm. I had known what I know after seeing the movie, I would have charged more. <laughs> I would have owned two or three planes, and I would have had one or two islands in the Caribbean. Found your way into the count room, right. maybe? <laughs> and, uh, uh, would have been hanging out in the count room. One scene between De Niro's Rosenthal-inspired character and Pesci's portrayal of Spilatro was in a diner outside of Vegas. The two men are talking about a little something called the Black Book. It was an exclusive list that you didn't want to be on because it meant you were banned from entering any casino for life. At its inception in 1960, the Black Book, officially known as the List of Excluded Persons, included 11 names, most added to the list because of their mob ties. In the book's first 40 years, there were 49 people added to the list. Since 2000, fewer than a dozen have been added. The Black Book is a heated topic with Oscar. And the reason it was called the Black Book, it had uh, a black cover mm -hmm. and a twine, actually, that uh, held the page to the black cover. And that's why they called it the Black Book. Okay. Like being blackballed. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, even worse than that, because to me, they didn't have to, uh, any uh, guidelines uh, that would connect a gaming violation, which I could understand having regulations about that. Uh, but uh, they didn't have any uh, reason. Cri criteria? Uh, criteria. It's... Uh, my, in my opinion, one of the most uh, unconstitutional documents and uh, uh, procedural vehicles uh, ever invented by man. The Gaming Commission acted as the judicial branch of the Black Book. They decided who went in and why. It barred uh, two things from taking place. One from a person who was in the Black Book, uh, if they uh, were caught in a casino or on a casino property, uh, they were subject to a gross misdemeanor, a $1,000 fine a year in prison, and the casino uh, owner and licensee could lose their license if they permitted a person uh, to enter the casino uh, who was in the Black Book. In 1987, Rosenthal found himself in the Black Book years after his days as a casino boss ended. He was formally banned, 
unable to work in or even enter any Nevada casino because of his alleged ties to organized crime. The uh, inclusion is into the black book or the list of excluded persons is not something that the agency takes lightly because a person is excluded from any appearance inside of a casino and uh, it's a gross misdemeanor for them to do so, so it's a criminal offense and casinos can in fact lose their licenses as a result of that. I think that the issue that really put Rosenthal over the top in terms of his nomination into the black book was the subsequent disclosures about what was really going on under his tutelage at the, at the casino. I look at the Stardust experience in my role with Frank Rosenthal as being playing a, a puzzle. And every time I make an appearance with someone, uh, it may be a, a former intelligence officer from the Metropolitan Police Department, or it might be a reporter. They say things that I hadn't heard before. And uh, they had little pieces of the puzzle that, you know, only now I'm putting together as to what was really going on. In June 1990, Rosenthal, represented by Goodman, won an unprecedented court ruling to have his name removed. But a year later, the Nevada Supreme Court reinstated Rosenthal's ban for good. So in essence, what uh, Frank Rosenthal did was validate all of the laws and all of the processes that the Nevada gaming authorities were using in the conduct of gaming, which later became a model for all other jurisdictions that ultimately uh, passed uh, gaming regulations. So all of these rules and regulations were validated by virtue of uh, Frank Rosenthal's insistence that he had been wronged by the state of Nevada. Do you ever consider making a formal challenge, a legal challenge of the Black Book? I mean, did you? I, I did it every day. I was challenging uh, for all these people. They were real people who were being barred. Um, it's still around, right? It's still around, but now, but now, I think they realize the, the error and the sins of their way because the ones that they uh, nominate for the Black Book, number one, uh, they say you're entitled to a hearing, even right. though the hearing is a joke. Uh, but number two, I can't think of. Um, uh, they don't put murderers in it anymore. Uh, what they do is they uh, uh, put people who have been convicted of cheating uh, or uh, obviously cheated at a casino. And those kind of people probably should go into some kind of a vehicle uh, which would uh, preclude them from coming into a licensed establishment. But to put a guy in there because he uh, made a uh, bad application for uh, a loan uh, because he didn't like him and his last name ended in a vowel, uh, to me, they were completely out of line. Eventually, Rosenthal relocated to Southern California and then Florida, where he ran a sports betting website and worked as a consultant. He settled into civilian life until his death in 2008 of a heart attack at age 79. After his death, a headline-making discovery was made by Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter Jane Ann Morrison that Rosenthal was actually an informant to the FBI. I wrote the first story saying that Rosenthal had been an informant. And it was after Rosenthal died, and I got three sources, very reliable sources. They were unnamed sources, but I knew who they were. And they confirmed that he had been what you call a top echelon informant. Now, they did not tell me, and I still don't know, how much information Rosenthal gave them. Was he playing both sides? Was he maybe giving information to the FBI and giving information, not only the FBI, but the Gaming Control Board? He was also talking to them. So no one has, I've never gotten information on what he told people, but you have to remember when everybody else was being indicted, Rosenthal was never indicted. Known for fiercely defending his clients in and out of the courtroom, 
Oscar Goodman did not agree with Morrison's account of Rosenthal's double life. When I wrote the story that uh, he had been a top echelon informant, the next day I went and asked him what he had to say about it because he insisted always that he never represented snitches, although there are people in the FBI who, who have said to me he may not have realized they were snitches, and that could be true. He might not have understood that uh, Frank Rosenthal was playing both sides. While Oscar got close to his clients in order to defend them, there was one thing that he could not get behind, the notion of a rat. Soon, he would find himself in the middle of one of the biggest fights of his career. His opponent? None other than the FBI. The rat in question? A man you may know if you followed our first season of Mobbed Up, Frank Collada. On part four of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a voice from the past returns to the series in a battle that continues with Oscar Goodman. When I finally start confessing to the murders or talking about them, then I know I was locked in. I was locked in. Tony Spilaccio would say to me, whenever Collada would come around, stay away from this guy. He's a bad guy. I never consider myself an informant. An informant is a person that wears a wire and goes out for self-gratification to make money. I was a, a witness in trials that I committed the actual robberies. That was a death sentence, you know, if you were a rat, yeah, to the, whoever was, you know. This has been part three, season three of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Also, be sure to leave us a rating or review. Production staff includes managing Asia Hendricks, producer Carrie Roper, field and studio production by Larry Meir, sound design and mix by Greg Conway. Special thanks to Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas at the Plaza for hosting us on site. And our guests, Jane Ann Morrison, Stan Hunterton, and Jeff Silver. To learn more about Mobbed Up, visit lvrj.com backslash podcasts. I'm Review Journal columnist John Katzlamidis. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode.